Hey there, welcome back. Let's see what's going on with my touch, man. Funny how time flies. You screwed everyone. Trump gets screwed by co-defendant's lawyer during hearing. So I heard they were trying to sever, trying to have their own separate trials. Ah, thanks for the 53k. Hey, Trump, come out with your hands up, stupid fucking terrorist and thief. That was a warning shot. Michael Popak, Legal AF, with more breaking news and analysis about Mark Meadows taking the stand in his own defense in federal court last week, and how by doing so, he's committed the crime of perjury that could be used against him, not just by Fonnie Willis in the Georgia criminal prosecution of Mark Meadows, but by Jack Smith as well, as a new crime using that against him to wow. once again squeeze him to roll over on Donald Trump and testify for democracy and justice. What am I talking about? Well, first of all, I'm starting to doubt that Mark Meadows, who used to be a, a, a member of the House of Representatives and the chief of staff, number four chief of staff for, for Donald Trump, I'm starting to doubt whether he's literate and can read because wow. he and his lawyer, because they did this together, decided it was a good idea for him to waive his Fifth Amendment privilege and uh. take to the stand to try to argue that all he was doing was regular, normal chief of staff stuff within uh. his job description, and he wasn't doing anything that was improper or political in nature, and he denied, and this is where the perjury comes in, he, he denied point blank that he, Mark Meadows, was involved at all with coordinating the fake elector scheme. Let me repeat that, because when I show you next, and I read to you next, not just what Fawny Willis wrote in her own brief, uh, where yeah. she called him out as a liar under oath, which is called in the business a perjurer, but it's inconsistent uh, with just what was in the Jan 6th Select Committee report. This is where I'm saying Mark Meadows can't read I am going to read to you from what, in the published report that's months old, the exact email that uh, Fawny Willis used against him in cross-examining Mark Meadows and showing that he lied. So first, in order to be a perjurer, you have to take a position under oath, swear to tell the truth, and make a statement. And he did. He said unequivocally, Unequivocally, I, Mark Meadows, was not involved with the organization, organizing of the fake elector scheme at all. I was not involved. That's almost a direct quote from the testimony. Okay? That's pretty easy to refute if it's not true. When you deny any role in the fake elector scheme coordination, you better hope to God you're right and that there's no document out there. But it's not even a guessing game. It's not even a guessing game because the email that Fawny Willis used is referred to on page 309 of the of the Jan 6 committee report in the chapter under chapter 3. Let me give you the title, Mark and Counsel, 
fake electors and the president of the Senate strategy. That's a good place to look. It's right in the middle. I know there's no pictures, but you, you need to read your prior testimony or at least testimony of other people. And I will tell you now who I now believe is the number one witness cooperating with Fawny Willis against Mark Meadows among all that she's brought in, all 75 plus that she's brought in between two grand juries is Cassidy Hutchinson. Remember Cassidy Hutchinson? Yep. The very brave young woman in her, in her mid-20s who God was Mark Meadows' executive assistant job, or assistant to the, the chief of staff, right? And she, at first, had a Trump lawyer assigned to her, bought and paid for by Donald Trump, who told her not to remember things that she told him in preparation that she remembered. Why don't you not remember that? That made her uncomfortable. She searched her soul. She talked to her priests. She talked to her parents. And she got a new lawyer. And when she got a new lawyer, whose name was Jody Hunt, a well-known lawyer in of Columbia, very well-respected, she changed her testimony, cooperated with the Jan 6 Committee. More importantly, she testified in November, right, last November, to, the, to Fawny Willis's a special purpose grand jury and is cooperating with Fawny Willis's special purpose grand jury. It's not pulling teeth. She's cooperating. And I am sure that both her own emails and texts that she turned over to, to Fawny Willis, consistent with her testimony at the Jan 6th, and what she said particularly about Mark Meadows and his involvement with the Trump presidential campaign, right? Not, not the West Wing, not the White House, not the Oval Office, where the chief of staff is, but the political side of the Trump world, the Trump campaign, the Trump PAC. And that's where Mark Meadows, right in the middle, almost like a point guard, dishing out information, coordination between the Oval Office and the campaign. That is political. That means you're not operating as a federal officer under the color of your office. And that means you stay in Georgia state court with Judge McAfee, and you don't get to go to federal court under a unique aspect of federal removal law. But Mark Meadows put a lot on the line by taking the stand. I mean, most legal analysts including this one on legal labs, and there's no way he's doing that because the risk-reward uh, risk equation is so off-kilter. The reward is you get to try a case in federal court, but you get Fawny Willis still, you get Georgia Law still. It's still not pardonable by Trump in the future because it's state crimes, not federal crimes. Um, and yeah, you get a little bit of a, a little bit of a faster track to the U.S. Supreme Court, but that can't be the reason you take the stand. And if you're going to take the stand, don't lie, right? Rule number one, cardinal rule number one: when I represent clients, don't lie on the stand. Don't say something that's not true. And if I know they're going to say something that's not true, this is the alert to the lawyer: don't put the witness on the stand because now you're guilty of a crime. It's called suborning perjury. Now, Mark. Introducing the FilterSorb Whole House Water Conditioner, a complete home. Mark Meadows gets, is so off kilter. The reward is you get to try a case in federal court, but you get Fawny Willis still, you get Georgia Law still. It's still not pardonable by Trump in the future because it's state crimes, not federal crimes. Um, and yeah, you get a little bit of a, a little bit of a faster track to the U.S. Supreme Court, but that can't be the reason you take the stand. And if you're going to take the stand, don't lie, right? Rule number one, cardinal rule number one: when I represent clients, don't lie on the stand. Don't say something that's not true. And if I know they're going to say something that's not true, this is the alert to the lawyer: 
don't put the witness on the stand because now you're guilty of a crime. It's called suborning perjury. Suborning. Now, Mark Meadows gets paints himself into his own quarter, both in his uh, cross-examination, well, his, I'm sorry, his direct examination by his lawyer, where his lawyer is asking him questions. And he says categorically, I was not involved with the coordination of the fake electors uh, at all. And then in cross-examination, they bring up a document. More importantly, just read the pages from the Jan 6 report. I think everybody's now ready for my teaser, and I will now read. If you turn to page 309 in your hymnal, and this is what it says in section 3.2 by the Jan 6 committee, under the header, President Trump and the campaign adopt the fake elector scheme. Remember, we're looking for something that says that Mark Meadows was involved with the coordination of the fake elector schemes because he said he didn't. He wasn't involved under oath. Here's the report. In early December, the highest levels of the Trump campaign took note of Chesbro, Ken Chesbro's fake elector plan and began to operationalize Bro. it. On December 6th, White House Chief of Staff Mark Meadows, Mark Meadows alert, forwarded a copy of Chesbro's November 18th, 2020 memo to Trump campaign senior advisor Jason Miller writing, this is Meadows' comment in the email, and this is the same email that Phony Willis used to show that he's a perjurer at the hearing. Quote, let's have a discussion about this tomorrow. Close quote. Miller replied to Meadows that he just engaged with reporters on the subject, to which Meadows wrote, if you are on it, then never mind the meeting. We just need to have someone coordinating the electors for states. Miller clarified that he had only been working the PR angle and that uh, they should still meet, meaning Miller and Meadows, to which Meadows answered, got it. Later that week, Miller sent Meadows a spreadsheet that the, camp, that the Trump campaign had compiled. It listed contact information for nearly all of the 79 GOP nominees to the Electoral College on the November ballot for, listen to this list of states, see if they sound familiar, Arizona, Georgia, Michigan, Nevada, Pennsylvania, and Wisconsin, the seven battleground states that the fake electors were used in. And on December 8th, Meadows, continuing with the report, the Jan 6 report on page 309, on um, December 8th, Meadows received a text message from a former state legislator in Louisiana recommending that the proposed um, quote, Trump electors from Arizona, Michigan, Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, all meet next Monday at the state capitals, call themselves to order, elect officers, and cast their votes for the president. Then they certify their votes and transmit their certificate to Washington. That's a easy email about a coup to which Meadows replied. Now, you'd think at this point Meadows would reply, leave me out. I'm not participating in a coup, and here's my resignation letter. Instead, Meadows replied, we are. In other words, we are going to call all of these electors together and have them vote for the president. Cassidy Hutchinson, John 6 committee report, a special assistant to the president and an assistant to the chief of staff, Mark Meadows, confirmed Meadows' significant involvement in the plan, the electoral fake elector plan. Hutchinson told the select committee that Meadows followed the progress of the fake elector efforts closely and that she, quote, remembered him frequently having calls, meetings, and outreach 
with individuals and this just being a prominent topic of discussion in our office, meaning his coordination with the campaign and others on the ground about the fake elector scandal. She continued, when asked how many of his calls or meetings it came up in the fake elector scandal, Cassidy Hutchinson replied, dozens. Okay, Mark and your lawyers, how about before you take the stand, you read the Jan 6 report? I mean, I know you don't have access to the grand jury testimony uh, that resulted in your indictment, but you know it's in the public record, don't you? Um, so it was malpractice for the lawyer not having done what I just did, which is to go back to the Jan 6 report and find that information and make sure his client was accurately prepared. It's either malpractice or he just suborned perjury by putting a witness on Meadows that he knew was going to tell a lie. And the email that's now been used in briefing and in cross-examination of Mark Meadows demonstrates once and for all, it's the same email referenced in the Jan 6 report I just read from on page 309 that Mark Meadows just perjured himself. That has implications, as you can imagine, because that is a separate crime that can be indicted separately in by either federal prosecutors, because he did it in federal court in front of a federal judge, so the local Department of Justice for Atlanta, the Northern District of Georgia U.S. Attorney Alert, could prosecute him for lying on the stand in front of a federal judge. Okay, and then that could be used by Jack Smith, of course, to squeeze Mark Meadows even harder because we've always been confused about is he cooperating or is he not cooperating? There's aspects of the Jack Smith election interference indictment that look like Mark Meadows is cooperating by some of the statements made, but he's not even listed as an unindicted co-conspirator. He's not mentioned at all. So what's going on? We, we always wondered that. Is, is he just, Mark Meadows isn't playing ball and he hopes later on he will? Well, now Mark Meadows has placed his own, you know what, firmly in his own vice to which Jack Smith and the Department of Justice can now turn the wheels. You don't have to do that, Mark. You could have not taken the stand and go and try your case in state court by taking the stand and perjuring yourself. Now, Fawny Willis can prosecute you and the Department of Justice through the Northern District of Georgia U.S. Attorney's Office uh, can prosecute you for lying to Judge Jones. And Judge Jones, who heard all of this, could then take disciplinary action and make a referral of the lawyer for Meadows and refer him to the Bar Association for possible discipline and disbarment because you're not supposed to allow your, your client to lie on the stand. You're supposed to use some modicum of due diligence to maybe, I don't know, sp spring 20 bucks and go buy the Jan 6 report, read everything in it about your client before he takes the stand. You know, and look, there are plenty of situations to, to answer some questions that may already, already be coming up on this hot take. What happens when a lawyer maybe doesn't know the client is going to lie until the client gets on the stand? And then you know, because you've done your diligent research, and you know your case, you know the client has just said something that is not possibly true. What do you do? Well, then you owe a, a higher calling and duty to the federal court and to your ethics and to your rules of professional responsibility than you do your own client. And you ask for a timeout. You ask to approach the judge. You, you approach the judge with the other counsel in chambers without your client, and you tell them we have a problem. The problem is my client, I believe, has just lied on the stand, and I cannot suborn perjury, and then it takes a whole different track. That's what a competent, ethical lawyer is supposed to do. I've seen it in my own career. That's not what happened here.
But we're going to continue to follow why Mark Meadows and the others of this gang that can't shoot straight seems to be too smart by half and maybe can't even read um, why they are doing the things that they're doing strategically, tactically, or just because they're not that smart in this 19-person indictment, including Donald Trump in Georgia, and the offshoots of it in federal court that we're now seeing. We'll follow it on hot takes just like this one. I do it here, and then we pull it all together in a podcast on Wednesdays and Saturdays, also on the Midas Touch Network, called Legal AF, and yes, it's what you think. If you like what I'm doing in hot takes, give me a thumbs up here. You can follow me on all things social media, at MS Popak. Until my next hot take, this is Michael Popak, Legal AF. Hey, Midas Mighty, love this report? Continue the conversation by following us on Instagram, at Midas Touch, to keep up with the most important news of the day. What are you waiting for? Follow us now. She don't need no Instagram. She just uses Instagram. At Fry's, you can save big today with sales and promotions on your favorite items. Baker, and you'll find it all. We can show. Sunday, September 3, 2023. I'm Anthony Davis. Welcome to The Weekend Show, where we take a deep dive into the news of the week. You can support my work and independent journalism at patreon.com slash five-minute news. Our guest today is the author of eight books, including American Rule, How a Nation Conquered the World But Failed Its People, and Midnight Kingdom, History of Power, Paranoia, and the Coming Crisis. Jared Yates Sexton, welcome back to The Weekend Show. Anthony, always good to see you, my friend. Um, we're into September now, but August was a kind of momentous month in American political history, and, you know, not least because the disgraced former president faces now a total of 91 charges across four criminal cases, 44 federal charges, 47 state charges, all of them felonies. Uh, the Fulton County uh, District Attorney has charged Trump and 18 others in connection with efforts to reverse his 2020 election loss uh, in the state. I never thought this would happen, you know, because it has been a while since January 6th. The, the coup, the insurrection, the riot, whatever you want to call it. And yet, the fact that it has taken two and a half plus years is actually now being used as being weaponized by the Trump team. And they're like, well, if I'd have done something so bad, why is it taking you guys so long to do anything about it? How, how do you feel about this, you know, these indictments? And do you think that it's the right thing at the right time? First of all, I'm no legal expert, but 91 indictments is, uh, it strikes me as bad. It strikes me as not a good situation when you, you're looking down the barrel of uh, almost... And he says he's not guilty of all of them. I mean, this is the thing, you know, it's not like, oh, yeah, I might have done that one and not those 90. Like, he's denying everything. Abs- absolutely. Um, I, you know, to talk about this thing, um, I'm, I'm going to do something that's antithetical to a lot of political discourse. I want to talk about this in, a, in an actual nuanced, adult, mature way. First of all, is Donald Trump guilty of all these things that we all watched him do in real time? Absolutely he is. Um, should he be held accountable for what he has done? Absolutely. Like you, 
I did not think he was going to get charged with these things. I did not think that the legal system would hold him accountable. But let's also be mature and admit that our judicial system, our institutions, our political system did not particularly want to charge a former president with these crimes. He forced their hands. And we can both admit that that is true, that it is political in nature, but that also doesn't mean that it's not true that he did these things and that he deserves uh, to be held accountable for it. Um, you know, I, I personally... Will you choose James T. Kirk as your fleet commander, a pioneer of space exploration? Selecting him increases reputation gained from factions, as well as grants a space exploration boost. Or will you decide to travel a more strategic route? Choosing Spock as your fleet commander grants efficiencies in construction, mining, and research tasks. You can also decide to go a darker route and elect Locutus of Borg as your fleet commander. Who will strengthen your ships and award you the upper hand in player versus player combat? The choice is yours. This is your final frontier. there are a lot of people, Democrats, Republicans, Independents, you name it, who really wish that Donald Trump simply would have retired to Mar-a-Lago. He would have crashed people's weddings, done photo ops, uh, you know, come out to hail to the chief every now and again, and do that for the rest of his days. By continuing to insist that he would run for the presidency and possibly even become, you know, the, the 47th president, uh, I think that forced a lot of hands. And so, you know, I, I, I think we have to look at this, again, maturely. We have to be honest about it. We have to not take someone like a Jack Smith or, or uh, the Attorney General Merrick Garland and say that these are messiahs and heroes. We have to look at it with a little bit of a, you know, a, a side askew. But we also need to understand that Donald Trump is uh, getting his just desserts for what he has done and the role he has played. But I want to point this out, Anthony, because it wouldn't be me if I didn't point this out. While Donald Trump is being held accountable for these things, while the Proud Boys and the Oath Keepers and a lot of the people in his orbit are being held responsible for it, the people who funded this, the people who strategized it, the people who basically ran the entire operation, the billionaire donors, their institutes, their think tanks, their organizations, have gone completely without any scrutiny whatsoever. Donald Trump has eaten up a lot of scenery in this, taken up a lot of oxygen, and I don't think that is uh, an accident in any way, shape, or form. The, the lobbyists in the think tanks... These organizations, they play a very large role in American politics, and they are, as you say, largely hidden. Federalist society, for example, you know, these kind of organizations that are under the radar. People know they're around, but they don't know how much influence they may have. And yet there is always some kind of plot going on for something. Installing, that, that word installing a president or installing a leader. And, I mean, I find it fascinating that in this country, you don't have to vote for a leader to be the leader of the party. Like, anybody can just be like, okay, I'm going to run for the Republicans. And kind of nationally, they become adopted by osmosis. 
you know, in the in the UK, a, a party leader is is voted upon, and then that leader becomes the prime minister if they win a general election. So it's very interesting to me how it just kind of people just roll with it. But I did want to say that there is now evidence that Merrick Garland did delay the investigation of of, of Donald Trump. Talk to me about the culture in the U.S. of not wanting to indict a former president. Well, I want to go ahead um, real fast. I want to add something to something that you just said. With these institutes, these think tanks, I, I, I don't think this is something that gets brought up in a lot of political conversations. The Republican Party is a, a public relations front for these people. Like, people who want to think that, like, Mitch McConnell, or back when, you know, he was particularly effective and, and lucid, that he was sitting in an office drafting legislation or plans, that's not true. These things are created by groups that are funded by billionaire donors who go ahead and institute this all around the country. The Republican Party is largely a, you know, it's a clown car. It's a group of people who continually uh, push culture war ideas, controversial ideas that go ahead and sort of prick the, 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 the fears, the uh, uh, insecurities, and the, the prejudices of their base. So that's Kevin what's McCarthy actually- is a good example, right, because he's not a smart guy, doesn't no. have the vocabulary or the ability or the intellect to be able to no. do some of the things that are happening. No, he absolutely doesn't. You know, um, Kevin McCarthy is literally every single day as Speaker of the House attempting to save his political life. And so much of it is trying to keep this wild card Freedom Caucus to, you know, keep from basically submarining his entire office. But to go along with that, one of the things that you just brought up uh, in terms of Merrick Garland not necessarily wanting to prosecute Donald Trump or not wanting to go after former presidents, it's necessary to understand that prior to our current moment, we're in this moment of upheaval. I, I, I call it a moment of crisis, and there are plenty of reasons why it's happening. Um, there is a big power struggle happening right now. The Republican Party is being taken over by authoritarians who want to go ahead and push people like McCarthy or McConnell out of the way in order to use the power of the government for a certain thing and to basically break up the neoliberal order that we've been living under. That neoliberal order, that consensus... It was very much a beltway culture, Anthony, in which Democrats and Republicans hung out all the time. They knew the same people. They were funded by the exact same people. They disagreed on this and that and what the tax code should do or what this should do, you know, at the margins. That's where they fought most of their battles. And meanwhile, you know, you could talk tough. You could talk about George W. Bush, you know, uh, prosecuting an illegal war, global war on terror that killed over a million people. You could talk about Ronald Reagan did this or Bill Clinton did that. But you were largely playing a, a game of softball. You know, you, 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 were, you were still hanging out with one another. You shared a lot of the same donors. You had the same goals. But what is happening right now is a hostile takeover. And, and one of the things that's happening is that Donald Trump, who I don't think he could explain this to you if he had to. Yeah. I, think, I think he intuits it. I think yeah. uh, uh, well, he's a mark, isn't he? He's like an empty vessel, a blank canvas, and he's perfect for these people to manipulate. And he's because he doesn't realize. No, he has no idea what he's doing at any given time, but his distaste for uh, um, authorities, his distaste for limitations and checks on his power are inherently fascistic. And what they've done is they've broken a lot of the, or they've revealed that a lot of these institutions are broken. And a lot of the very, very smart people who I'm talking about, these ideological right-wing authoritarians, they saw what Donald Trump did and they've taken advantage of it. They've just absolutely run roughshod over the past few years because of what Donald Trump has revealed. When it comes to Trump, 
and his blatant criminality, his just absolute overt self-dealing and cravenness, he has pushed the hand of people who really do not want to be in the business of prosecuting former presidents. And why? Because you could probably prosecute almost every former president for some crime or shape or power. The office is more or less being there in order to do things that, upon closer scrutiny, are a little bit problematic. Nobody wants to go down that road, but it just so happens that Donald Trump's peculiar brand of cravenness meant that something had to be done. And so it's, it's a reluctant act, uh, top to bottom. This is what concerns me, because, you know, so much that happens in U.S. politics is performative. Yes. And I would, you know, argue that, you know, raising the debt ceiling and government shutdowns is performative. There's no reason for it, right? It's like, you've got to carry on with the government. Just carry on funding it. It's just debt is debt is debt. And yet there's this whole theatrical production that goes with it. And the media, they put things on the screen, you know, 10 hours to shut down and... And, and tragically, in those situations, the people that pay the price are government workers, federal workers, who go without a paycheck for a few weeks. You know, I know it gets paid back, but even so, it's like life is not good for them. Meanwhile, the wealthy continue to enjoy their lives. So, so it is inherently unfair. But the performative aspect of this, of sending him to the Fulton County Jail to get booked and the mugshot and all of the... You know, people are comparing the image to Che Guevara and all this stuff. It's like, seriously, this guy committed a coup against his own country. There's 91 charges. I mean, you know, there's no shortage of criminality. My fear is, though, that if he's never going to be incarcerated in the same way that Merrick Garland didn't want to investigate him in the first place, there's no precedent for incarcerating a president in the United States. Yes, we can look at Nicolas Sarkozy and France and whatever, but Europe is not America. I don't see the point in all of this performance if he's not going to be punished like a regular civilian. Well, Anthony, what you're discounting is the emotional part of this entire um, let, let, let's be very clear about things like the mugshot. And listen, I know this isn't going to endear me to some of your viewers. I know this isn't going to make me popular to say... I was actually very turned off by the mugshot discourse. Um, you know, the, the, the large part of this was the humiliation of it, making him go into this place, get a mugshot taken. Of course, people, um, and this has always bothered me, we have to talk about how much he weighs. You know, we, it, it's basically the equivalent of, like, putting somebody in a public stock. Right. And, and, you know, just basically having them become a sin eater that we can look at and say, this person is suffering consequences. Obviously, everything must be right in the world. Um, it's very performative. And it is in, 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 in a large way what we have seen over the past few years as governmental power has been uh, uh, undermined, which is one of the problems. Going back into the late 1970s and particularly in the 80s and then the 90s, governmental power has been completely curtailed. Uh, in the past, the government and government officials used to be able to do things for people, make lives better, to invest in social projects and social safety nets. Since then, it has become professional wrestling. There's nothing for these people necessarily to do besides to lower 
tax rates for the wealthy to occasionally inject money into the economy during times like COVID, in which otherwise the entire economic system might melt down. But otherwise, they're arguing about whether or not we should have gas stoves Right. You know, uh, Ted Cruz, I think this was a really telling uh, clip recently where he said the government said that I can only have two beers a, a week. Well, that's not what the government said. You know, this is an Ivy League educated lawyer who isn't a good old boy from Texas, but he pretends like he is because it helps his fundraising. It is a character and it's a performative act. So what has happened is that, that, that inertia for the government to do things for people has been replaced by the simulation of doing things for people. They can go ahead and personalize the anger of things, which is why Donald Trump was a perfect leader at this moment for these people. He didn't really do anything for them. He actually made their lives worse. He actually continued on, uh, you know, the, the gross inequality and historic inequality. He actually went ahead and he didn't drain the swamp. He added to the swamp. He didn't actually build the wall. He told them he built the wall. But what he gave them was emotional catharsis. And unfortunately, what's happening in our politics is it's moved from being a process by which the future is supposed to be made better to a point in which the present is supposed to have some sort of an emotional catharsis that substitutes in for anything actually being done. The former president posted a video on Thursday of him holding up a T-shirt with his mugshot on it and was like, come and get your T-shirts fundraising off of that image which he wanted he wanted a mugshot he wanted it to go viral he wanted the you know all of the the, the trappings of, of you know the the iconography and that is the for me the saddest part of this is that we're now in a situation where a former president of the united states is is proud of his criminality is proud of his mugshot and, you know, is about to go into an election year where he'll be in court more than he'll be on the debate stage. I mean, it, it, it can't be good for America, just what it's doing to the country in the meantime, you know, because aside of whether he's convicted or not, this process, I mean, the four years that he was president were bad enough, but we've had him on screen every day since. And now, like like uh, the My Pillow guy, he's selling merchandise. Yeah, it actually harkens back to the good old days of Dillinger and Capone. You know, America, particularly America's strain of capitalism that has just grown over us like so much kudzu at this point, it emphasizes destructive things. And I think we're going to talk more about this in this conversation. But one of the things that's happened here is that Donald Trump has literally taken an incredibly shameful thing. He has been indicted for, again, over 90 things that he has done wrong in betraying the country and trying to lead the country astray. Um, this, in the past, would have been a moment for him to have said goodbye to the limelight, gone and, and taken his medicine, and America would have learned from it or a country would have learned from it. Instead, now he's embodying the villain role. And one of the things, whether or not it's in modern politics or professional wrestling or whatever it is, people like to root for the villain sometimes, particularly in moments in which they feel powerless or they feel like the system isn't fair. And for the record, the system is not fair. Um, I did an interview a couple of weeks ago, Anthony, where someone said to me, can you believe that people don't trust our institutions anymore? Can you believe that people don't trust the judicial system? Can you believe what Trump did? And I said, he didn't do that. There are reasons we shouldn't trust our systems and our judicial system. They're legitimately corrupt. 
So as a result, Donald Trump has figured out a way to make money from that, gain power from that, and take advantage of what is actual frustration. And in that case, and this is a kind of a losing hand that we find ourselves in currently, the Democratic Party, because it's in power and because the Republican Party has become a fascistic authoritarian movement that is trying to destroy everything, the Democratic Party has been um, turned into an institutional defender and guardian, basically telling everybody who knows that things are not right and that things are not working correctly, hey, I promise you, if we just stay patient, things will figure themselves They've out. they become the conservatives, Jared. I mean, that's yes. the irony. They are the Republicans. They that's care for the Republic. They want to keep the Republic together. And, and, and yet the, the traditional Republicans have now become the, the rebel alliance, you know, or, or, or the... Or the, um, you know, they they they've got their own agenda, and it does not. Because, for example, Marjorie Taylor Greene, we're not a democracy; we're a constitutional republic. I mean, this language is pushing further and further away from that tradition of conservatism and and wanting to protect the republic. Yeah. Come here, come here. I want to show you something. Neither movie is twenty-four hour permanent teeth. Our patients come in with missing or damaged teeth. And in 24 hours, they leave with this. And it completely transforms their life. When you shop Wayfair's Labor Day clearance, you get deals so big, we'll have you saying, Am I a big deal? Because it's a big deal when you get a big deal. Wayfair deals so big that you might get a big head. Because with a sale this big, you can get your dream sofa for half the price. Shop Wayfair's Labor Day clearance now. Wayfair, you've got just what I need. Yeah, and what has actually happened is that conservatism and liberalism in the last 40 to 50 years, starting back in the 1970s going into the 80s, they sort of blended into this neoliberal sludge. Again, there were... You know, there were conversations about, you know, should we allow gay marriage? You know, what, what role should women have in a society? What should civil rights look like? Like, those were real, actual discussions. But when it came to what the government should do and how the economy should function, largely it was a consensus. And so what has happened in the past few years as this, as this consensus has led to really destructive things, you now have a new breed of Republicans. Um, I call them neo-fascists. Um, I write about the fact in the Midnight Kingdom that they are absolutely obsessed with getting rid of liberalism, representative government, and democracy. They will tell you, if you listen to them, if you read their books, you even listen to their campaign speeches, what they tell you is they want to use the power of the government. They've learned from Marx. They've learned from Lenin. They want to use the power of the government in order to tear down representative government and create sort of a neo-feudal state in which they are, they are in control of everything. And for people listening at home who say, that doesn't sound like small government, no, 
it's not small government. It's very, very large government because these people understand something that a lot of other people haven't for a long time, Anthony, which is principles of the Republican Party were never principles to begin with. If you believe in small government, you don't care what people do in their bedrooms. You don't, you, you, you don't care who they love or what they do. If you're really for those values, that's not something you concern yourself with. They're not fiscally conservative. They run up massive deficits every time they're in power. These are simply weapons. And this new breed of Republican that is taking over the Republican Party, they are not what you would consider conservative. They're, they're radicals. They're very, very dangerous people. And the threat that they represent has put everybody else on the defensive. And, and I'll tell you, in times where things aren't working, being on the defensive, it doesn't work that well. Yet of the six or seven videos that Donald Trump posted in the last few days, each one includes him. He was foaming at the mouth, incidentally which I found <laughs> quite revolting. He kept saying, they're Marxists, they're fascists, they're communists, and this now is becoming a kind of, you know, it, we heard it a little bit before, but, you know, it, it bears no resemblance to reality. It's mainly projection. But the irony is, now that this critique of the other side as Marxists is actually, should be turned on its head, because... As you say, their inspiration is coming from some of these political movements of history. Yeah, it's actually really interesting what's happened. You know, I, I used to be a professor in the humanities, and one of the things that we often talked about was how language and meaning got twisted up and turned around. I'll never forget the day I got out of a meeting and I saw that Marjorie Taylor Greene had referred to uh, communist corporations. Which is an incredible construction. You know, it really, truly is. And what has actually happened, and, and I hope I don't get too far in the weeds here, what has actually happened is that American corporations have realized that liberal and or tolerant ideas are what make their products more acceptable and appealing to people because the majority of people are accepting and tolerant and care about people not feeling oppressed. And, and this well, references diversity and inclusion, for example. Any of right, these companies which, that are trying to be more diverse and more inclusive, it's good for business. And, well, yet, and it keeps them from being sued. Right. Let's be very clear yeah. about that. Like, yeah. quote-unquote, woke corporations are actually worried more about being boycotted or being sued than they are, you know, pushing forward liberal or woke ideologies. Corporations are not ideological. That is, that is their founding. That is their entire basis. It's, it's the but, bottom line every time. Right. But the basis of what people like Marjorie Taylor Greene or other of these new breed of Republicans want to do, Anthony, they literally want to use the power of the government to compel corporations and media institutions to espouse their ideology. They understand that the majority of the culture doesn't agree with what they believe in. They, they understand that their ideas are incredibly unpopular. But they are based on historical ideas that by going ahead and, and creating a dictatorship of ideas, a minoritarian dictatorship, you can go ahead and change discourse. You can go ahead and change culture by compelling it to accept your ideas, which is where they're at now. And they're trying everything from um, J.D. Vance, uh, the despicable senator from Ohio, uh, on the campaign trail, talked constantly about letting people with children have more than one vote. Right. Or, uh, you know, now they talk about raising the voting age like they're trying everything in their power to dismantle democracy yeah. so that they can use these democratic institutions to their own ends. And the entire purpose of it is to create a, a cultural hegemony that they can use as a weapon. Voting only on one day. 
um, you know, doing away with proxy voting or, or, or mail-in voting. You know, they, it's so obvious, though. You know, this is the thing that's like they're not trying to hide the authoritarianism. And, and maybe in years gone by, they did try and hide it. But now it's just out there for all to see. And I am very surprised that the media has not picked up on it, has not done more focused journalism about the rise of fascism, the rise of authoritarianism in the West. I want to talk about that in some detail in just a moment. We have to take a quick pause for our sponsor, and then we'll come back with more from Jared Yates Sexton. I'm excited to tell you about Moink. That's Moo plus Oink. Moink is a meat subscription box company on a mission to fight for the family farm. They're located in rural America, run by an eighth-generation female farmer. Their animals are raised humanely, their employees are paid a living wage, and the quality of their product is better than anything you'll find in the store. Moink delivers grass-fed and grass-finished beef and lamb, pastured pork and chicken, and sustainable wild-caught Alaskan salmon straight to your door. Moink farmers farm like our grandparents did, and as a result, Moink meat tastes like it should, because the family farm does it better, and the Moink difference is a difference you can taste. Now, unlike the supermarket, Moink gives you total control over the quality and source of your food. You choose the meat delivered in every box, like ribeyes to chicken breasts to pork chops and salmon fillets and much more. Plus, you can cancel your box delivery any time. I personally have struggled in the U.S. to find meat that doesn't have antibiotics in it or hormones added. And finally, I found a place where I can just go and trust that all of those things are taken care of for me. Now, I know that this is the right thing to do. I'm sure you will too. Just keep American farming going by signing up at moinkbox.com slash weekend right now. And listeners of the show get free ground beef for a year. That's one year of the best ground beef you'll ever taste, but for a limited time. So go to moink, spelt M-O-I-N-K, box.com slash weekend. That's moinkbox.com slash weekend. I've always found it difficult to find clothes that I like to wear. And when I find one thing that works, I just buy loads of them and just wear the same thing all the time. Well, men's closets were due for a radical reinvention. And Roan stepped up to the challenge. Roan's commuter collection is the most comfortable, breathable, and flexible set of products known to man. And here's why. Roan helps you get ready for any occasion. The commuter collection offers the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, zips, and polos. You'll never have to worry about what to wear when you've got the Roan commuter collection. The comfortable four-way stretch fabric provides breathability and flexibility that leaves you free to enjoy what life throws your way from your commute to work or your 18 holes of golf. It's time to feel confident without the hassle. With Roan's wrinkle release technology, wrinkles disappear as you stretch and wear the products. It's that easy. And with Gold Fusion anti-odor technology, you'll be smelling fresh and clean all day long. And on top of that, Roan is 100% machine washable, so you can ditch the dry cleaner altogether. I personally love a technical fabric, something that is advanced and uses technology to make a more comfortable and more modern outfit. 
Now, the commuter collection can get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. So head to roan.com slash Anthony and use promo code Anthony to save 20% off your entire order. That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com slash Anthony and use code Anthony, A-N-T-H-O-N-Y. It's time to find your corner office comfort. It's the Weekend Show. I'm Anthony Davis. There was an article uh, that was published in the Washington Post last week. The headline, Journalism Fails Miserably at Explaining What is Really Happening to America. It was written by Will Bunch. I just want to read, Jared, a few sentences from this. You and I have been discussing this kind of offline, this article, and, and I know that you also felt compelled to talk about it because, you know, from my perspective as a journalist, it's very frustrating watching the network channels, the cable news, and seeing what people are being served when there is so much more to discuss. So the article said, if you watch the hours of TV news coverage during an especially momentous week in August, there was little sense that of that reality, and for long stretches of pundit blather, none at all, as talking heads gave earnest high school debating marks to candidates who were all but ignored by the GOP voter base talking about the, the GOP, GOP debate, of course. Uh, the disconnect deepened the next night as Trump turned what would surely be his comeuppance, his surrender at Atlanta's bug-infested county jail for fingerprinting and a mugshot, into an outlaw display of authoritarian force. They say it was a remarkable night of imagery over substance, yet there was little discussion of why this accused felon was getting a phalanx of dozens of motorcycle cops comprising police who are drawn to Trump's authoritarian bluster like moths to the light. Trump, glowering mugshot, instantly becoming the most talked about picture in American history, yet not one pundit was able to explain why tens of millions of everyday voters are so eager to return him to the White House, a man who attempted a coup, or why his poll numbers rise with each indictment. Over to you, my friend. Yeah, I, I, I thought Will's article was uh, really well-written and really well-reasoned. Um, Anthony, there, there's been a problem over the past few years. You know, I, I got into uh, this political game back in 2016. I was going to Trump rallies, and I was telling everyone what I was hearing, you know, from his supporters and what I was seeing in this movement. And I was screaming. I was like, this is a really dangerous thing. It's letting loose these authoritarian energies. It's radicalizing people. This is going somewhere very, very bad. And I kind of had a moment where I was like, why, why aren't more people picking up on this? Like, why, why is it that this very obvious thing isn't getting more play? And occasionally there would be moments where, and I'm sure you remember these, I'm sure your viewers do as well, there'd be articles like in the New York Times or the Post that would be like, is Donald Trump a threat to democracy? Yeah. Question mark? Yeah. Should we right. be calling it fascism? Should we be calling yeah. it fascism? Yeah. And also, you know, we brought up January 6th earlier, I don't know if people remember this because it's 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 a very upsetting thing. We all watched an attempted coup play out live on television in front of the entire world. And for a few hours, it seemed like everybody understood what was going on. And within 24 hours, major pundits and journalists were like, I don't think what we saw actually happened. I, I don't think it was as bad as we thought it was. Yeah, it was tourists. And, and I think a lot of what has happened, uh, it, it can be broken down into a, a couple of key points. One is that our media, as much as they despise Donald Trump, and they do, they are addicted to him 
to no end. Our, our media, our economy is wired for self-destruction. We need to keep people terrified. We need to keep them anxious. But we also need to keep them tuning in. And Donald Trump is the biggest gift that the media has ever had. Um, he, he, you know, Occasionally, Donald Trump tells the truth by accident. And one of the things that he told the truth about was when he said the New York Times, the Washington Post, and the media absolutely loved him because of what he did for their ratings and their subscriptions. He's 100% right. And, and it has been the case. And they, they love anything that keeps people terrified and continuing to click or to look on. The other problem in all of this is that our media class is largely comprised of wealthy, privileged people. Uh, it, and, and I don't know if, again, your viewers know this. It costs a lot of money to live in New York City. And... To work as a journalist, and they don't get paid very much, whether it's in print or online or cable news media, you don't get paid that much. So as a result, you need to go ahead and have something that will make sure that you can pay for an apartment in New York City or keep you afloat, which means that most of the people who are there come from money. They come from privilege. As a result, they're not that interested in critiquing the institutions that are decaying. And so whenever they look around at the world, and, and this is something that I think Americans really struggle with, we have a hard time recognizing what's actually going on. Because to look at the problems with America means looking at the narratives we tell ourselves about ourselves. Like, if you are a really, really successful pundit in the New York Times or MSNBC or you name it, you're at the top of a ladder. Are you going to go around telling everyone that the ladder, like, is rotten? That the latter was unfair. As a result, you don't want to look at white supremacy. You don't want to look at patriarchal power. Well, you don't it's want to look at sabotaging, isn't it? This is the problem. Self sabotaging. Yeah. So we have an entire media class, and 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 by the way, uh, tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, of Americans are screaming at these people. Why do you not recognize what's happening, and why do you keep making it worse? And these people are largely uh, in their own ecosystems and bubbles. They can't reckon with what's going on, and they can't reckon with their own part in it. It's good for business. At the it's end great of the day. for business. Because most people don't watch the news. And, you know, look, I have a confession to make, and that is that I am addicted to Donald Trump. I, I am addicted to him in as much as, and this is like a quote from Howard Stern years ago when he was talking about the rise of his radio show. People listened because they just wanted to know what he was going to say next. And it's the same with Donald Trump. It's like, can he get crazier? Can he become more abusive and aggressive and inappropriate? And, and he's ramping it up at the moment. I mean, I've been putting some videos out, kind of really trying to kind of analyze his language. And I do get a sense that it's becoming more abusive towards Jack Smith and towards Letitia James and towards Forney Willis and anybody who is against him and the problem with this now though is that even those moments are good box office material my addiction to him is more about trying to save american democracy you know i uh, i personally because i come from europe where we get daily reminders of the the threat of authoritarianism you know bomb sites along the streets of london areas i live next door to one that was never rebuilt or new buildings in the middle of a row of old buildings oh yeah well that's where a bomb landed in 1942 you see so it's like constant reminders but we don't have that here in the u.s and so as you say this kind of media elite it's not something they need to worry about 
in the same way that my reference to the government shutdown earlier, you know, the reason that politicians play with these moments is because it doesn't change their lives. Those two weeks without a paycheck doesn't affect them. But for regular people, it does. Well, and let's go ahead and let's talk about red state and blue state America. Like, one of the things that has happened, and the Republican Party has absolutely taken advantage of this, it's that red state and blue state America are worlds apart from one another. And whenever you're sitting there, and, and I noticed this all the time on social media, it broke my heart, Anthony. People would say, I wish the South would just secede and get it over with, and we can live in different countries. I lived in Georgia for a decade. I, I grew up in Indiana. I have to tell you, there are people in those red states who are absolutely in danger. They've been oppressed. There's, you know, they, they live there and people say, well, they can move. Well, it takes money to move. And blue states, because their state of living is often better, they're more expensive and maybe their jobs don't work there. We need to start recognizing that there are a lot of people, whenever we start talking about politics like it's a game or it's a strategy, right? And and you'll see these centrists who are like, well, you know, I, I, I believe that, like, people of color have been discriminated against, but, like, it's bad for politics to talk about it too much. I wish they would they would calm down with it. And, you know, I know women feel bad about what happened with Roe v. Wade, but maybe this isn't the right issue in this election. Or gay and trans people, they really turn off people on the suburbs, so maybe we can deal with that later or whatever. You're literally talking about people's lives. Yeah. And that authoritarianism that you talked about in Europe, it gave us a really haunting lesson, which is you do not defeat it by sacrificing people. You do not defeat it by playing footsie with it and playing games with it. You take it on directly. Um, England, for instance, people might not know this. England had a problem with fascism itself. It was really picking up steam before World War II. Same thing as the United States, for the record. The reason that England was able to avoid some of the same traps that fascist countries didn't is because they confronted it in the streets and they said, you're not welcome. Yeah. You're That's referring to people like Enoch Powell, for example. Exactly. Who, who and, took to the streets to kind of deliver a message of fascism and, and the people rejected it. The people literally got in the streets with bottles and brooms and they said no. The United States had a problem with fascism and largely was able to avoid it because, not just Pearl Harbor, but also because FDR created a jobs program that recognized that a bunch of people who were out of work can sometimes be, you know, massed into a fascist crowd. So the whole point of this is that the media elite that we're talking about, they live in bubbles in which they don't experience this stuff. I, I was so shocked in 2016 as a, as a person who grew up in an evangelical community where they said, how is it that all these evangelicals are supporting Donald Trump? And for anybody who had ever spent a moment in any of these churches, they knew immediately why it was happening. They knew that this idea of religion that these people had was completely fabricated and false. So what has happened in middle America away from these bubbles, it explains everything. It, it tells you how this happened, why it's happening, what's happening, where it's going. And the problem is that we have a media class that is so insulated that they don't have the ability to understand it, recognize it, communicate it, and particularly, and most importantly, really reckon with it. They're, they're completely lost when it comes to this stuff. It's not fashionable, is it, you know, to talk about the negative. People, you know, it's almost like the negative has become the dramatic. But actually, it needs to stay negative. And, and, you know, historically, I'm just thinking about the Enoch Powell. He made a speech uh, which I think was entitled Rivers of Blood. Rivers of Blood. And 
know, this t- if you look at that language, doesn't it's not dissimilar to the language that Donald Trump is using now. And yet there is something missing. The fact that so many people can support Donald Trump, and yet that language, because I refer to it as abusive, this is the kind of new word that I've realized, he is abusing Merrick yep, Garland, yep. he is abusing Jack Smith, and, and not to mention the, the black women that he's abusing. And this language, it is, it is, it's like dynamite, like that thing is going to just go off. And, and whilst we all love a firework display, you throw a stick of dynamite into the mix and suddenly you're, you know, you're not going to enjoy the show anymore. And that's my fear is that what damage is being done 